keep searching until you find that right fit. And then once you find that fit, give it your all. Stick with it. Roy Bell, our latest guest, joins us on the show to talk about his experiences overseas and his life post-military. From losing his two best friends in combat to almost giving up on life until eventually finding peace again through his faith and joining an organization dedicated to connecting veterans in the sport of golf. This episode is full of hope and wise words from Roy. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Roy, what's going on, man? It's nice to have you, and thanks for joining us on tonight's podcast. I know we've been uh, waiting a little while to get you on, and I'm happy that we have you on now. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it was kind of crazy timing when uh, you and I met up, because it was at the start of us working on the book. And you were one of the very first veterans, um, I think, besides Dan, who was actually, you know, one of the authors, you were the very first uh, veteran besides a woman that I met up with in Washington. And it started with two National Guard. So it was kind of cool to meet up with you. And um, obviously, we want to have you on tonight to hear more in depth of your story because, you know, we can only tell so much in the book. So it's nice to have you. But I want to kind of go back and to the start of where your life was before enlisting into the army national guard where were you at during that time well i started my military career actually when i was 17 i was still in high school Mm -hmm. and i was so enthusiastic about being in the military Uh, i grew up a, a military brat uh, my dad was in the Air Force. Um, so I was, that was, that's all I was around. That was life I was accustomed to. Yeah. And I was excited about it. So high school, you know, you see all the recruiters walking around the courtyard at lunchtime, talking to everybody. And uh, when it, when I was 16, I started engaging with them and they were like, well, you got to wait till you're 17. We can't touch you till you're 17. So I said, okay. And Doing more investigation, I come to find out that the Air Force wouldn't take me until I graduated high school. But the Army, uh, the National Guard, Army National Guard had a split option program where they would take you a 17. Mm -hmm. You would go into basic training in between your junior and senior year of high school. And then when you graduate high school, you go and finish your training and then you're assigned to your unit. So uh, that's, that's the option I chose to go. That, that's really cool. I think it's similar to uh, the Marine Corps. They do a similar thing to that as well. Because I remember when I was interested, they had that same process to where if you were underage, you can get a co-sign from your parents, do, I think, all the training, the test, you know, do the physical. But then you'd have to wait until you turn 18 to go to boot. Yeah, I think that, but I think the Army was different. Like, you could you could actually go to basic training like the summer between your junior oh and your excuse me i'm totally wrong so i yeah. had no idea yeah that. that's that's exactly what it was i i actually did boot camp while i was still in high school oh no shit okay yeah yeah i remember when i went through because i i actually went through in 2006 and it was a summer and i think we had two or three people in our company who were doing that 
who were technically in their junior going into their senior year, but going through basic training. And it was kind of crazy because uh, there were very few few of us that were 17. That's so young. That's crazy. It was fun, though. Yeah, I can imagine. So that what made you want to join the Army instead of the Air Force? It was just because of that program? Or was there, you know certain MOSs and job titles that you were more interested in as well? Well, I mean, that was really basically it. I was such in a hurry to get into the military to start my lifelong dream, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want to wait until I graduated high school. If I could do it now, I did it now. Yeah. So that's what I did. <laughs> I went with whoever took me. So was this uh, prior to 9-11 or was this after? This was in 97, so this was prior to 9-11. Oh, wow, gotcha. okay. Yeah, there's. it's interesting because this generation, I feel like there's so few, well, maybe it's it, it, it's starting again, but you know, in the mid-90s, really from like 94 until you know 2000, well, really late 2001, really people just had to have a calling and like want to go serve because there weren't really any wars going on. And so it's right. kind of interesting to hear people's perspective prior to 9-11, you know, that again, that are in our generation, um, mm -hmm. just hearing their story and why they why they wanted to join. I wonder if. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, Roy. I was going to say, yeah, definitely. You know, that was definitely a lifelong passion for me. You know, like I said, that's all I knew growing up. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force, so I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. And where we lived at, we lived directly across the street from the Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember even as a little kid, my entire life, where we lived at, we were like in line with the flight path of the runways for the Air Force Base. So all of the Air Force planes, all of the military aircraft would always fly over our where we lived at day and night, all times, day and night, and just. You know, as a little kid, you see these big planes, mm -hmm. you know, flying over overhead. And it's just like, wow, that's so cool. And then, you know, the air shows every year, they would have uh, either the Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels come and do the air show and do all their little tricks and maneuvers. And, you know, at the air shows, they had more than just the aerial performances. They also had, you know, the opportunity to where you could go up and and get inside of some of the military equipment. The Army had stuff there, the Air Force, obviously. And I think really kind of that that was really when it started to capture me was to see, you know, hey, my dad was doing all of this cool stuff and I wanted to do it too. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it just kind of captivated me and took over me, you know, between that and just being instilled in me growing up, you know, you do this for your country. You know, there, there's a sense of pride that you take into being in the military, take someone special. And, um, you know, I, I, I just always knew that that's, that, 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 that was me. Mm -hmm. And actually when I was in basic training, my mom found a picture of when I was a little kid and it was at, I think it was at an air show or something, but I was, I was young. I was probably like five or six in this picture. And my mom, she would sew for like, you know, she would make clothes by sewing and crafting and stuff. 
So she actually used uh, some material of some of the old fatigues and made me a set of camouflage to fit me. Oh wow! At five years old, that's and awesome. I wore this, yeah, and I and I wore it to the air show, whatever. I'm sitting there in this little uniform that my mom made, had little patches on there too, and everything, and and I'm standing there, and I t- and, she, and there was a picture of me standing beside my dad in his uniform, mm. and she sent that to me when I was in basic training, and uh, and I didn't even think about it until probably years after this after basic when I found a picture again, but while I was in basic training and, you know, towards the end, they have family day, your parents and everybody come like the day before graduation. And I took another picture beside my dad, except I'm in uniform and he's not Mm -hmm. because by this time he's, you know, he's on the verge of retirement. Um, And then, you know, I see, I find these two pictures again years later and I put them side by side. I'm like, man, that's the evolution of a generation of my generation that's incredible it's crazy how time flies yeah it's kind of cool too because it's like that was like your playground like you were just exposed to the military your whole life so that definitely explains what led you up you know to wanting to enlist you know so fast at such a young age were you um what got you motivated to enlist and become a heavy wheel vehicle operator originally i signed up for the job to be a generator mechanic mm-hmm. and I was kind of into mechanics in general because my dad, he was a, he was a mechanic for the air force and with him being a mechanic, he did all the work at home on the cars and everything. Yep. So whenever we were doing work on the cars, I was out there with him. I was under the car changing the oil and everything as a kid. So I was, that's kind of where I was drawn to and that's where I was going. Well, while I was in high school, I, I played sports and all of that stuff, too. I did track, cross-country, football, basketball. Probably about halfway through or towards the end of my senior year, I get a letter from a random school I've never heard of, didn't even apply to. I get a, I get a, a letter from Spartanburg Methodist College offering me a cross-country scholarship. And I'm just like, oh, man. I could be an NCAA athlete, (laughs) (laughs) but training for a a generator mechanic was like four or five months long. Oh, wow. I I don't remember. It was, it was super long. Yeah. I wouldn't make, I wouldn't make it back in time to go to school in the fall. So I went back to the recruiter because I hadn't been to training yet. I still had the option to choose a different job and looking at the different jobs and everything and how that would fit. So I can come back and run cross country for school. I ended up being a truck driver and it, it wasn't like a last resort type thing because as a kid, I was that, I was that average typical boy as a kid growing up, always into the big trucks, the big equipment and stuff. So I'm just like, okay, Hey, this is like the next best, best thing besides mm-hmm. being a mechanic. That's awesome. So I know um, you joined prior to 9-11, but, you know, I think we've talked to a few people who were in, uh, but I, th- I believe they were all active duty, you know, when 9-11 happened. Um, what was your perspective, like being in the guard? Were you on um, like a drill weekend or were you back home and kind of witnessing it and seeing everything happening? 
you know, what was the experience like for you? Well, actually, I was active duty when 9-11 happened. Oh, okay. After my first year of college, I just, I, I just decided just to go active duty, and I did that and made that transition. So I was actually active duty, and I remember the day it happened. I was on my way back to the motor pool when everything was going down and uh, you see all the chaos going on at the gate because I, I fortunately I lived on post mm-hmm. uh, so and the way I had to go to get to the motor pool you know you drove by the back gate and just to see all the cars backed up and they weren't letting nobody on I'm just like what in the world is going on And then you start hearing all of this stuff going on over the radio. And I'm just like, "Uh Oh, something, you know, something, something big is happening. What's, what's about to happen? What does this mean? You know? So I'm just like, what's going to happen now? So on my way, I get back to the motor pool and, um, essentially it was like a lockdown situation. Once you're there, you're there. And it was, a little bit more serious for me because at the time I was stationed at Hunter Army Airfield in Savannah mm. and my company, uh, I was assigned to 416 Transportation Company. We directly supported the first 75th Ranger Bat. Mm-hmm. And at that time, first 75th, they were on two hour recall for rapid deployment. And whenever they're on rapid deployment recall, we have a section of people that's on rapid deployment recall because we're their support element. And my platoon just happened to be on rapid deployment recall. So not only is all of this stuff going on and they're locking everybody down, but, you know, it's like an elevation higher than that for for me and my platoon, because essentially we were already prepared to respond and react to any situation. So all of our gear was already packed up in a conics ready to go. All we had to do was draw our weapons and roll out. And we didn't get to that point, but they would not let us leave the motor pool uh, probably until late that night. And like, we couldn't even leave to go to lunch or nothing. So it was just kind of the whole day as the whole day progressed, we were all locked down in the motor pool, preparing equipment, just, kind of going through the motions and not really knowing what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, yeah. uh, so what years did you end up deploying? I ended up deploying in 2003 for the invasion and, uh, 2005 and also from 2007 to 2008. So I did a total of 39 months. All to Iraq, over right? Over all to Iraq. Well, mostly in Iraq. I, I started out in Turkey in 03 cause mm. the unit I was assigned to, we were supposed to be the support element for all the ground forces coming through Turkey from the North, but that never happened. Mm-hmm. So we had to pack everything back up and go back down through Kuwait. So I want to, I'm always curious to kind of hear more about, you know, the different MOSs and, I guess titles that I 
you have no understanding of what was kind of like your day to day, you know, going into being a heavy, you know, wheeled operator over there, you know, in Iraq, what were you guys kind of working on each day? Um, so initially in 03, the unit I was assigned to in 03, I was actually assigned to 403rd Cargo Transfer Company. And that unit, it was a combination of all logistical access assets. So you had 88 mics, which was me, the heavy wheel vehicle operators, 88 hotels. They were like the cargo specialists. They, they drove all of the forklifts, uh, the container handling systems, uh, that, that kind of stuff. And you also had 88 Novembers. The 88 Novembers, they were the ones who were in charge of essentially deploying the unit. They did all of the manifest for the cargo personnel and coordinating all of the flights and cargo ships for everything to be moved. So essentially the unit I was in, we had all of those elements together. And when our role in 03 in that unit, we were essentially like a logistical hub mm-hmm. of support. Um, so we ended up being like a kind of like a warehouse type company, even though we weren't supply, we would, you know, we would manifest the containers and stuff coming in, move all of that stuff around and essentially just ship it out wherever it had to go. And, uh, what they did with, uh, all of the 88 mics is they essentially detached us to other units to help support the logistical convoys going back and forth uh, from Baghdad to Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And that's that's essentially what we did. I mean, that was constant day in and day out. Uh, we would load up, you know, and uh, drive up to Baghdad, drop our load, turn around, come back, load back up, turn around, go back up drop our load, turn around, come back. That was essentially the day to day. (laughs) I mean, there was times where we went like, I mean, we would drive like constantly. I mean, we would stop long enough to get gas and to flip our loads, but that's about it. There was no stopping to use the restroom or stopping for chow. No, it was straight rolling. How many times do you think you did that trek back and forth? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck one too many. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> that was a pretty rough area at that time too, wasn't it? That you guys were going through. We had a couple of hot spots uh, at first. Cause by the time we got down into Kuwait to move North, you know, the invasion had already happened. Our ground forces had already, you know, made it to central and Northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. So Saddam's, army was essentially non-existent so it was kind of hot spots here and there where we would get pop shots from the wood line or whatever but the the atmosphere was welcoming at first but then as time progressed it would get more hostile and 
there's one little town right there as you cross over the border from Kuwait into Iraq. There's one little town right there. And originally, you know, the 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 people that lived there, they were all happy to see us and all the kids were all excited. And, you know, hey, America, America. And, you know, it's kind of made you feel good at first. But mm-hmm. then as time went on, you start doing these convoys back and forth through there and and you start to sense the change of the attitude towards us. Interesting. By that by that time we've extended our, you know, overextended our welcome. And you know, instead of them coming up, hey, yeah, America, America, Mr. Mr. Food, food, you know, because they would always beg us for food and candy too. Uh they would start throwing rocks at us. Uh, and then they I was just start, about to say that. <laughs> yeah, they would start throwing rocks and then they would start throwing piss bottles at us bottles they would piss in and throw it at us oh geez and mm-hmm. yeah and and then then it turned into you know well if they're not doing anything if we're throwing piss bottles at them and rocks at them well let's throw some grenades at them you know well, let's throw some ieds at them you know and and that's kind of how it started to transition into the more hostility and and everything towards the end of that deployment so geez what was um out of your deployments was there one that kind of sticks out to you the most like ones that either you've had a better experience with or ones that you've you know had one of your worst experiences with what were those like um that's that's a tough question because all three of them have a different level of impact mm-hmm. on me um, because all I, in, in the midst of 03, 05 and 07 to 08, those were all of the big transition years. Yep. 03 was the invasion. 05 was Ramadi. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when we started getting, uh, that's when we started having to uh, um, Jerry rig, the, the vehicles put our own steep slabs of steel on there to protect us from IEDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 07 to 08 is when they started using EFPs, electronic form projectiles, which was more lethal than an IED because it penetrated armor. I mean, it didn't matter mm-hmm. how thick it was. It went straight through it. Really? So I can't to say which one stuck out more to me. For me, I can't necessarily say. Um, I would say probably 03, the you know the initial invasion, mm-hmm. you know, as kind of unsettling as it was, was probably the easiest of the three that I went to. I'm sure, um, especially you like driving heavy equipment and trucks. Um, you saw firsthand the progression too over the years early in the invasion 05 like you said and then you know 07 08 when they finally started upgrading vehicles and put making them more armored um did you see a lot of that transition firsthand and and did you see a, a positive effect i did and you know the like i think the the one of the more unsettling 
transitions wasn't 05 was when we had to schedule to take our vehicles to have extra armor or extra, it, it wasn't even really armor. It really, what it was is sheets of half inch steel that are, that the mechanics would weld to the bottom and the sides of your vehicle. So it really wasn't armor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at that time it was just like, okay, all right, this is a different level of fear factor here. You know, this is a different threat level and you're walking into this and, you, and you're, you're constantly on the road. So, and you start seeing these videos that they put on YouTube and everything. And you're just like, that could be me. Yeah. And your mentality shifts from being, you know, more from if something happens to when is it going to happen? Mm-hmm. That's like the, uh, the unfortunate kind of, you know, mindset. And I can imagine to where, like you said, even being in a, you know, a truck or driving around in Humvees or whatever the case may be, you're just kind of always looking out almost at like every intersection, every opportunity you can thinking like, is this going to be it? Is this going to be it? Is there an IED over there? You know, you're just constantly on high alert. How, how much damage can those military vehicles sustain? Like those bigger trucks? Like, is it kind of like, I know it depends on, you know, how many pounds it is of an IED or what projectile goes through it, but can they take quite a bit of damage or are they kind of like a one and done? Um, it's a variable amount of factors. Depends on where they hit it on the truck. Uh, depends on, like you said, how big the blast was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably about 50, 50 as far as like catastrophic hits for a vehicle, uh, you know, from what I've seen. So I think the fortunate part was that in a larger vehicle, you're a little bit higher up. So you're not as close to the blast as, as you are as like in a Humvee, mm-hmm. but they have a bigger potential to disable the vehicle. And if the vehicle gets dis- disabled and you're in the kill zone, you know, then you're in, then you're in a complex ambush type situation. Mm-hmm. So obviously like small arms fire probably does nothing to them. After they got up armored? Not really. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So I know when um, you and I met, you know, I'd be interested to hear more about the story because I thought it was a really touching story that you were telling me about. Um, We met at, you know, one of your closest friends, Grave Plots, when I was photographing you uh, for the upcoming book. And, um, you know, we were there also with his father, which was pretty cool to meet him and, you know, just kind of have that moment, even though I have no relation to it. But what was uh, that story like, you know, obviously losing your friend overseas, but more importantly, reconnecting with his family like years after that? So that was that that whole story right there that is something that's been pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a whole lot better since we've, since I've been able to find closure and connecting with the family. But uh, I guess just to kind of go back and take you from start to finish. So 
this was this happened in 07. I was stationed. We were we were stationed in southeast Baghdad, uh, probably like a mile south of Solder City. And to give you a, a idea of what the violence was like in that area, I was in that area around Solder City when American Sniper happened. You seen the movie American Sniper? Yep. Well, when they were in Solder City and they were putting the walls up and that was that was his last mission and all of that. Mm-hmm. I was there when that happened. I wasn't at Solder City, but I was down the road from it. Oh, so wow. <laughs> that that's that gives you an idea of, of how the atmosphere was there. So it was real violent, real it was a real bad area to be in. And uh, you know, again, 05 was one thing when you know, coming from Ramadi and Ramadi, it was like every day you were always getting attacked and multiple times a day. And it wasn't a matter of if it was a matter of when mm-hmm. and who it was going to be. It was the same thing in 07, 08. Um, but one day I was actually walking. Uh, I was actually walking back to go to the chapel. And on the way back there, I, Pass, passing by the little PX that they had on the farm. And one of my buddies was walking in and he had just got back from leave and we started talking. He was all excited and telling me about how his leave was and whatnot. And, um, and we're getting ready to part ways. And he's just like, Sarge, I don't think I'm gonna make it. And, you know, my heart just kind of stops and I just like, what do you mean? I don't think I'm gonna make it. And when he says that, you know, so many things go through your mind. Cause it's one thing for you to think it yourself, yeah. but for somebody else to actually come out and say it to you, you know, it's just like, okay, I'm a staff sergeant and I have a E5 sergeant talking to me about this. What, do I say, what do I respond with? You know? Mm-hmm. So I'm just like, well, do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, do you have a Bible? He said, yes. I said, you get the Bible, you read the Bible and you pray and you pray to God and you trust God that we're going to make it home. And you know, you can see his facial expression change. He seems to cheer up or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, so we part ways. That was the end of the conversation. Well, like, I think it was the next night was him and a couple of my other friends went out, you know, they went out on a mission. And that was, that was when they were all killed. And Jeez. it was late that night because my job on my last deployment, I was like the logistical NCO for my entire battalion. So I was in charge of coordinating assets coming in, going out to support the unit. So all of the convoys would come in late at night and I'm always in the talk, you know, waiting for them to come in and, and also going back to do my reports after they leave. Then I'm fi- then I'm finally going to bed probably about two or three o'clock in the morning. Hmm. So 
the, the convoy actually didn't come that night. So I'm actually on my way back to my room. This was, this was way after midnight. And I hear the explosion in the distance. And I knew we had units out and I'm like, this isn't good. So I go back to the top to see what's going on because with me being a logistical NCO, I had, I had to coordinate way more than just, you know, the convoys going in and out. You know, I also worked with the, you know, the, the flights, you know, if we had to get soldiers in and out and all of that. So I, I was like a really important person logistically for the unit. Mm-hmm. So I go back to the talk, see what's going on. And I come to find out that, uh, you know, we that they had. At that time, it was two KIA and uh, so many injured. And I didn't know who it was that was that was killed yet. Um, but uh, later on that day was when I found out who it was. And it's when I found out that Chris, the guy, my buddy that I was talking to before he went into the PX, was one of them. And not only was it Chris, it was my other buddy, Michael, uh, Michael Moody. And um, Michael is where we met at, at the gravesite. Yeah. So that whole story is like, different people, but it all comes together because they were all killed at the same time. And that's kind of how the story goes as far as trying to tell it. But, um, so that one really, it really hurt my heart. It really brought me down big time spiritually, you know, cause I just had a conversation with Chris like two days earlier, like a day or two earlier. Mm-hmm. And he had that feeling like, this is it. And, um, you know, it's, so it never sat well with me and it it never sat well with me because of my response as well. I felt like I should have said more to him, um, getting over into my religious beliefs. I feel like I should have, made sure that he was saved, that he had given his life to Christ. I feel like I should have led him in sinner's prayer, if mm-hmm. nothing else. Uh, but because I didn't do that, I felt like I was carrying his salvation as my damnation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I felt like I was going to be judged harshly by God because I didn't give him the opportunity to be saved. I think it's, um, as cliche as it sounds, though, I think it could be possibly the contrary. Like, do you think that maybe like that was his calling almost that you were there to ask him, you know, if he believes in God, if he was saved, you know, and to go grab his Bible, you know, if he had that inkling of intuition that he didn't think that he was going to make it, you know, and I'm sure a lot of guys and women say that when they're over there and they're involved in combat. But I'm almost wondering if that was like, that was his calling and you were there to help minister that, you know, rather than to, to feel guilty that I know you probably feel like you could have said more, but I don't know. It sounds opposite from how I hear it. You know, you, you're not the first person to say that to me. And 
I've wrestled with that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for a long time, uh, for a long time, for it was very specific for me and in, in my mind processing it, you know, yeah, I led him back to the Bible. I led him to God, but I never actually led him in prayer mm-hmm. at that moment. You know, I can plant the seed, but if he doesn't do anything with the seed, you know, it, 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 I still felt responsible. But fast forwarding a little bit or a lot of bit, I come back and um, as soon as we get back from Iraq, you know, we start our block leave and I PCS to Fort Lee, Virginia, where I'm at now. And probably a year or two later, uh, after I didn't got med boarded out medically, um, the Virginia War Memorial, they do these memorial runs every year. I, I, I'm not, I can't remember what time of the year it was, but I did, it was a 5k run. So I registered for it, went up there and I, being the military person I am, always there super early. So while I'm waiting, I'm taking a tour to Memorial and they have this little section. They had this little section downstairs of all of the people that were from Virginia that have been killed in OIF, OEF. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at all the pictures and, and then that's when I see Michael's picture. Now, Michael was one of the other two people that was killed mm-hmm. in that incident with Chris. And, you know, my mind just immediately goes back to that. And after that is when I started wanting to look into reaching out and connecting with the family, with Michael's family, uh, with Chris's family and I never really wanted to connect with Shane's family because we were cool, but we weren't like tight like that. Mm -hmm. Me, Michael and Chris, you know, we were, we were kind of tight, but I wanted to reach out to them just, and I don't know why I did. I I knew, I know I wanted to for Chris because I, I felt like I had his blood on my, on my hands. Um, so I, at one point I did try to find them. I thought I found a contact for Chris's family. I sent an email, never heard anything back. Kind of discouraged me a little bit, but I moved on. Um, never looked back. Several years later, uh, this was actually in 2019. One of my friends, one of my other friends, he's a retired master sergeant. He calls me up I, and I call him. I'm actually about to make my run to Starbucks. And I'm like, hey, Randy, what's going on? He's like, man, not much. I'm getting ready to head over here to this uh, to this 9-11 ceremony. Mm. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Because they have a 9-11 ceremony every year in front of the CASCOM quarters on Fort Lee. So I was like, all right, cool. So I go, I make a detour. I go over there to the ceremony, sit for the ceremony. 
he introduces me to the liaison for the Gold Star families here at Fort Lee. In that meeting, I asked her, I'm like, do you know, I said, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here. Do you know the Moody family? And I said, if you need to know why I'm asking, I'll tell you. Hmm. Um, she said, yeah, I know him. And I said, would it be possible or you tell me your opinion, what you think I should do? I said, would it be possible that you could connect me with them? And I told her a little bit of the story or whatnot. And she said, definitely. I'll definitely reach out to Mr. Moody and see if he would be willing to meet you. And um, she calls me back like the next day and tells me, I talked to Mr. Moody. He said he would definitely love to meet you and. And he's really excited. And and uh, I said, okay, cool. Well, you know, a couple of days go by. I never hear from him. And one afternoon, my boys, I got my boys off the bus from school. And, you know, they're young, elementary school. So they're just getting off the bus, wound up from school. I'm trying to get them to do their <laughs> homework, go through their stuff. And all of a sudden, my phone rings, and I don't recognize the number. And I'm just like, who is this? I'm like, I don't have time for this. But I'm just like, you know what? Let me answer it. I don't know who it is. So I answer the phone. I'm like, hello. And in the midst, of, I got both of the boys, you know, in my ear. And uh, and, I, and I hear this guy on the other end. Roy. Yeah, who's this? This Moody. And I'm just like, my heart just stops. You know, I get this whole heart stopping moment again and I'm just like, oh, my God, how is this about to go down? What do I say? What do I do? I got all these emotions and feelings and thoughts going through my mind and my head and I just don't know how to process it. And I got these two little boys in my face. They want my attention. I can't right now. And I'm like, yes, sir. How you doing? And he says, Hey, what time is the thing tonight? I'm set. I'm like, what thing? You know, the dinner. <laughs> what dinner? Well, aren't you, you know, the dinner, the, the, the dinner we doing tonight at Mission Barbecue? I'm like, um, I'm not sure, but I could try to find out and let you know. Well, aren't you, aren't you the representative for the dinner? I'm like, no, sir. Were you Roy Bell, right? Yes, sir. What? What? Then how am I calling you? I said, Mr. Moody. <laughs> my name is Roy Bell. I was there when your son was killed. And I didn't know what to expect. Hmm. I'm just like, in my mind, I'm just like, I'm, I'm about to hit a brick wall here. But as soon as I say that, he's just like, oh, yeah, man. Yeah, he was so excited and everything to be on the phone and finally connect with me. And I was just like, I'm I'm trying to catch my breath and my heart is like trying to start beating again. And I just, yeah, it was, it was kind of a relief to finally get to that point. Mm -hmm. So he was, you know, we talked, whatever. He said, man, 
I'm sorry, I got the numbers mixed up. So he said, are you coming tonight? I said, you know what? I'll be there. Because they had a Gold Star. They had a they had an event for the Gold Star families that night at Mission Barbecue. Mm-hmm. So I got all the information. I went up there that night and I met them face to face for the first time. And, uh, you know, meeting Michael's mom, you know, she just, she embraced me like I was her own child. And, you know, just the tears just started flowing and, they wanted me to say something that night at the dinner after they did all of their presentations or whatever. And so I kind of said my little spiel. And if you've ever been to Mission Barbecue, you know, it's nothing but loud and noise and everything. <laughs> you could hear a pin drop in the middle of Mission Barbecue after I finished telling my story. I think everybody was boohoo crying. Jeez. But you know, I finished, I sat down and I just, I finally just broke down and lost and lost everything. And then I, I'm finally letting all of this weight go off my shoulders that I've been carrying for years. And she just, Michael's mom gets up and grabs me and wraps me up from behind and just holding on to me. And I just, I can't hold myself together. And it was just, a, an exhausting but exciting and freeing moment for me mm-hmm. i can imagine you know i i think there's probably countless people and in, in, including myself like i i carry a little bit of survivor's guilt with me and i'm sure that's you know that that's exactly what you're describing and and yeah, there was a Definitely. little bit more to that, you know, cause you, you felt like you had a, you know, your, your, your duty to your faith to, um, to have that sinner's prayer and, and to reconnect that person, you know, uh, those people back to God and everything, but just to come full circle and, and reconnect with the family, what would that have been 11 years later, 12 years later? 12 years. That's yeah, crazy. It's just absolutely incredible. Like you have to, you have to know that there's, you know, there, there's something in the world. There's something, you know, in the universe that just, that pulls something like that together that it's mm-hmm. not natural. And, uh, you know, and it, it, it gives me a lot of solace in them that, you know, even 12 years later, you were able to reconnect with the family and they wanted to connect with you. Cause, uh, I, I think about it almost daily about how I should, you know, should have reached out to uh, my friend's family and I never did. And I still haven't. Well, I would encourage you to do so because meeting Michael's family and being embraced by his parents, the way I was, um, you know, even though I didn't have that same guilt with Michael as I did with Chris, um, it was still, like I said, still all the same incident. Michael was killed instantly, just like Chris was. And, you know, I'm not even going to go into the details about a lot of the circumstances 
surrounding that incident because mm-hmm. it's just it's not suitable for a lot of people but um I, I felt obligated to talk to michael's parents as well about everything but meeting michael's parents and being embraced by them gave me the courage and the strength to try to reach back out to chris's family mm. uh, especially because and, and that one was probably more important to me than Michael's family was because like I said, that one, I felt like my salvation, my salvation was on the line. So I start getting the next, actually that night when I got back from mission barbecue that night, I got on the computer. I started doing research and trying to put two and two together, trying to find names of the family and where they're at and, looking them up on Facebook. I end up connecting with one of his sisters, one of Chris's sisters. And the next morning I ended up connecting with his daughter Mm -hmm. on Facebook. And, you know, just in the midst of connecting with them and, you know, getting on the phone with them and talking and, you know, going through my story with them like I did with you all. You know, I, I posed a question, you know, I said, for peace of mind, can you answer this question for me? Was Chris saved? Did he give his life to Christ? And when they responded with yes, it was like somebody lifted a house off of my chest (laughs) and (laughs) it was kind of like, okay, now I can breathe a little bit because I don't feel like I'm carrying that anymore. But at the same time, it was a learning experience for me because I didn't feel like I responded the way I should in that moment. And you see how the circumstances turned out because no man is promised Mm -hmm. the next day. No man knows the day nor the hour. You know, I mean, he said he felt like his his time was coming. Mm -hmm. He was killed a day or two later. And, you know, you just people take that time for granted. Yeah. And you take your last interaction with people for granted. And what if you don't get another chance after that? So it really opened me up to kind of going back to that basic golden rule, treat people how you want to be treated. Uh, and just making the most out of every opportunity you have with other people mm-hmm. because you don't know where they stand. No, you don't know where they stand mentally, physically, spiritually. And, you know, for me, spiritually is a big thing. Um, so you try to make those efforts to do your part according to your beliefs. Yeah. You know, so that's where, that's where it kind of drove it in for me. It was, you know, Hey, 
you need to make sure that when you do have moments with people, you make the most of them, you know, and, and especially if they share something sentimental like that to you, something that they're feeling, you know, like, Hey, I don't think I'm gonna make it. Maybe you need to take a little bit more time. with them. Yeah, man, that's, that's heavy. You're a, you're a good man, Roy. Like, yeah. and just, I mean, I knew it the second I even, you know, just saw you before I even started talking to you, just the circumstances of us meeting at, you know, that you're, you know, Michael Moody's plot and then meeting his father there. And it's funny because the way you describe him and the way you, you voice him, like I can literally <laughs> picture his face of him like talking <laughs> like that and being loud and, and all that. But, you know, he was such a, a good man as well. But I think there's a, the world needs a lot more of that warm hearted kindness that you give. And for like Dan said, reaching out 12 years ago and wanting to have that obviously weight lifted off your chest, but maybe to maybe remove some of that weight off the family's chest, you know, maybe give them a piece of joy to kind of hold on to a connection of their sons. I don't know. It's pretty inspiring. Yeah. And you know, I'm still friends with his daughter and family on Facebook too. So really I kind of check in with Chris's family periodically and, Mm -hmm. And uh, me and Michael's parents, we talk, we talk pretty often. So that's cool. It's awesome. So to kind of, you know, go forward from there too. So after you, you know, medically retired, what were some of the challenges that you personally faced with transitioning? <sighs> Trying to figure out my life. Um, you know, essentially you come back from, Three deployments back to back. You get medically retired from your life. So the military was all I ever knew. And all of a sudden, it's no more. It's gone. Well, what do I do now? And yeah, I struggled. I really struggled. You know, a lot of people, you hear this hype of, well, because you're in the military, because you have all of these, uh, all this training and all these qualifications. You can walk into a GS job, no problem. You can walk into a government job, no problem. Well, that wasn't the case. That was not the case for me, you know, and I was actually ready to walk into that job. I was promised a job by somebody higher up. I went to go get that job and start the job just to be told that, oh, well, sorry, we don't need you no more. And Mm -hmm. that's when it really started to get kind of scary uh, as far as like, okay, how do I live now? And it took me several months to even find a part-time job. And that job kind of, catapulted me it was a job with virginia department of transportation they had a internship program it was like a part-time thing they put you in somewhere within a department and you learn new skills and hopes to transition into a permanent full-time job with the department Mm -hmm. so during the course of that internship program i am led towards being like a construction inspector So, and what they did from 
the VDOT standpoint was you're actually out there on the road uh, doing these projects. Well, you're not doing the work, but you're out there with these contractors that are like paving the roads and fixing the roads and stuff like that. You're the one that's in charge to make sure that they do it right. And I'm like, okay, cool. And I enjoyed it. Hey, here I am again. I'm back around big trucks again. Yep. You know. <laughs> you got a day-to-day mission to do. <laughs> a day-to-day mission, long days up yep. there before, you know, out there before the sun comes up, out there after the sun goes down. You know, I'm like, all right, I'm living the dream hours. again. Yeah. And, but then here I come with the personality differences. You know, here I am mission focused, mission oriented, and, you know, all about getting the job done, doing the job right. No shortcuts. Right. Yep. You're out there and you're in charge of these contractors doing the work, but all these contractors, all they want to do is do what the least amount of work for the most amount of money. Mm -hmm. So they start taking all these shortcuts, you know, getting an attitude with you when you call them out on what they're doing wrong. Needless to say, I got in trouble quite often uh, because um, I wasn't no punk and I wasn't going to be punked. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, it was in 2016, June of 2016 is when I, I finally found that threshold uh, when another inspector wasn't doing his job properly. And I tried to correct him on it. He caught an attitude with me. And I kind of blacked out and <laughs> all I envisioned was this kid's body flying through the air and landing <laughs> underneath a dump truck. <laughs> and after that, I, I, I called my boss. I said, I'm done. I can't take this no more. And I called my doctor, told my doctor what happened. And he said, all right, come get your letter. You're not going back to work. And uh, that's, that's been the story for me because I can't, I had, I, I'm, I tell people, everybody, you know, when you go to the doctor, they say, do you have any allergies? I'm like, I'm always, yeah, I have allergies. What are you allergic to? Stupid. <laughs> I'm allergic, You're allergic to, to stupid. bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, so that, and that's all you're around out there. So now it's just been trying to navigate, you know, society now, because now it's, it's a different attitude, a different mindset that's out there. You got all of these young kids that are coming up and and I'm not old by any means, but I'm not, you know, young by any means either, but you got this different mentality. That's this entitled mentality. Mm -hmm. I don't have to work for nothing. I don't care what you think. If I feel offended, you got to do what I think is right. You know, all of that mindset. And it's just, it, it gets me so worked up and I just, I can't take it. So I, I cannot really interact with people too well. <laughs> yeah. I think you can, that's see, I think you can interact quite well with people that understand, you know, more so who you are. Cause I think everybody's like a, to a certain extent, there's certain people that I can, you know, talk to all day long and, you know, and communicate properly with. And there's other people where I literally have to just turn an eye because I just can't stand listening to them. I'll give you that. Yeah. I'll give you that. I think I can interact some, but you know, once you cross that threshold of Mm -hmm. you, you cocking off an attitude and disrespect. Okay. Yeah. You don't cross the line for me. 
Roy's I'll a big guy out too. Roy's a big guy. I'd be pretty intimidated if I was on a construction site and he's like, <laughs> what'd you say, motherfucker? And then he comes after you. <laughs> <laughs> I might be playing like, I might be dodging around the tractor on each side of you. How many people have you chased on the job site? <laughs> oh, man. Um, Too many he's willing to admit to. <laughs> probably, yeah. Uh, I, I will say that, you know, I've had my fair share of run-ins with people on the job site, with the contractors. And uh, see, being working for the state, even as a contractor, when you're out there on the interstates, you always have uh, state police out there for traffic control, for safety, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just so happened, this one contractor we always have a problem with tried to get loud and bucket me. And we were right behind the state trooper's car. I was just like, you know what? Greg, get out my face. He kept wanting to push the button. I just walked up troop cars and said, you better get him because I'm about to kill him. <laughs> oh, shit. That's funny. So do, do you think that's, you think that's kind of the leading, you know, cause of, of what you're seeing with veterans that are struggling with the thoughts of suicide, alcohol, um, you know, any one of those types of situations where they kind of lock themselves up for a little while, do you think it's because they're obviously dealing with, you know, not having that camaraderie, not having that purpose, that connection anymore, but maybe they do come back and they get, they try and go after a job and they find something that they just can't relate to. And it just kind of puts them in a hole. Definitely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Because I struggle with that a lot. You know, you, you feel like you can finally have something you fit back into and nothing works the way it's supposed to, because you're walking into this. of All right. This is the job. This is how we get the job done. We keep it moving. Right. And as veteran, as military, or at least my era of military, whatever you put yourself into, you give it 200 percent. You know, you don't half-ass anything. And you're sitting here putting forth all of this effort into whatever it is you're doing. And everybody else around you just keeps put, putting stuff on you and they're not doing anything at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it frustrating. And then all of a sudden when things don't work out, you know, you, you can't work with the different attitudes and personalities Uh you don't fit in anymore and you know at least in the military everybody's crazy but we're all our own special type of crazy we all have the same crazy in common you know (laughs) but out here in the civilian sector it's just like all kinds of crazy all (laughs) kinds of crazy our crazy don't enter enter enter, uh twine together too well Mm -mm. so um you know what we for me, when I face struggles like that, you know, yes, it, it's hard for me. It makes me feel like I don't fit in no more. I'm not accepted. You know, it doesn't matter how much good I do, how much effort I put into it. It's never going to be good enough or never going to be right because nobody likes um, it. It Actually, no, let me take that back. It's not about me per se. It's or my work is because other people have a problem with me personally Mm -hmm. and my attitude personally. 
that overshadows the good work that I do. Yeah. I think it's just to me so frustrating. I'm sure you felt the exact same thing as like people who serve, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20, 30 years. Like it, it's very rare in any other industry that somebody could work for that long and then not come into a job, you know, not, not be seen as somebody who has experience. And so when you leave the military, it's very hard to find the organizations and companies that'll give a chance to a veteran and like realize that you have some experience. So it's like you're starting over even after you've mm -hmm. done something for 12 years or 15 or 20 or 30, you're just starting right back over. That's, I, that's so brutal. And yeah, it's like, dude, I've dedicated my life to so much and I've done way more than anybody else in your company or organization has even fathomed of doing in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And you won't even give me a chance. Like it's such a frustrating thing in, in in society is just the way that it is. It's like, oh, you were, you know, you were part of the military. All you know is how to shoot and run your mouth and, you know, be like every other veteran that we see on TV or in the movies. It's like, that's, no, that's so flawed. It's absolutely a flawed mm -hmm. thinking. And unfortunately, that's, you know, I know you've seen it. Bo's now seeing a lot of it mm -hmm. after talking to so many veterans. Like, it's just that's what we're trying to change. We have to. I yeah. mean, we have to change that conversation. Yeah, I think a lot of people over oversee the fact that it doesn't matter our qualifications. And you look at our work ethics, mm -hmm. you know, because like I said, whatever I put myself into, I'm putting myself into it 200 percent. Yep. You know, we're trained to be perfectionists because if it's not perfect, people get killed. You know, so we're not going to stop till it's done right. It's 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 funny hearing that, too, because like Dan said, the more that I'm around veterans and hearing that mindset, I think there's a lot of things in my life that I didn't push myself hard enough for. So I quit easily. Like I'd find something new that I was excited about, put my all into it for a little while. And then after a couple of years, I'd be like, eh, like and then move on. And, and some people would argue and say, well, you, you know, you just weren't passionate. It just wasn't your calling. But I, I think that being surrounded by people like you and Dan and all these other veterans that, you know, we've photographed and interviewed for the book, they have that same mindset that if I'm going to put my all into it 200% all the way until I fail. So it's kind of unique to be around that mentality and personally help transition my mindset that way too. Well, it's, it's like the one thing that the military gives you that I, I feel like somebody from the outside should look in and understand and pick up. And, and there are some organizations and businesses who ca who capitalize on it, but especially after you've made it past your first enlistment. So, you know, four to six years of service after that, you've proven that you are not only adaptable, trainable, and that you can excel among your peers because not everybody gets promoted. Mm -hmm. Um, but you've also proven that given enough time and determination and mission on any one thing, you can achieve anything. And that's the biggest thing that I've gained from my military services. You know, like when I went to school, I honestly, after going to a few classes, I was like, I could do anything that I want. Honestly, colleges, yeah, it kind of sucks, but it's not that difficult. And I could probably, if I wanted to be a doctor, probably be a doctor. If I wanted to be a lawyer, I could probably be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I didn't have desire for those. Um, but that's the thing that, that I wish more people would kind of understand that people, especially, like I said, after that initial enlistment, 
improves through their you know longer enlistments. Yeah. I agree. So, um, I know the way we got connected, uh, you know, we, I was talking to Tom under down. I got connected to him through somebody on my hockey team, uh, Scott. And, uh, I talked to him very, very briefly. And this is, a uh, uh, Tom's organization is the fairways for warriors. And, you know, Tom's an incredible person, but I've even learned more and more that there are just almost an infinite supply of incredible people in, in the fairways for warriors organization. And I just think it has a good structure behind it. And mm-hmm. that's why, um, but you know, what was your, I guess, how, how did you get involved in fairways for warriors and what has your experience been like? Well, I got involved with fairways. Uh, basically I was, I was up at Walter Reed for an appointment and, uh, I, I would always have early appointments. So I would go up there the night before and stay the night. And I was Googling golf organizations for veterans. Fairways came up. I was checking it out on their website. And what really kind of drawed me to them was the fact that they were doing Bible study. Mm. I was like, oh, this is different. So I looked through it, member qualifications, all of that, submitted my membership stuff right then and there. And I want to say it was the next day, either the next day or the day after that, Tom actually calls me himself, welcoming me to the organization. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, okay, this is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. The founder of the entire organization is calling me to welcome me. All right, this, this is different. And, you know, since then, so when I joined, it was actually only me and one other person that was in Virginia that was part of Fairways. And we were kind of like the initial startup of making a chapter here in Virginia. So Tom comes up, meets me, and we go play golf. And I suck at golf. <laughs> He's like, who cares? We're just having fun. <laughs> I'm like, all right, cool. So we hang out and it's just, it's almost like since being a part of Fairways, Tom just brought me in as part of the family. And, you know, everyone that's involved with Fairways is, they are like family. Mm-hmm. You know, it, some of them you've probably chewed some of the same dirt together with or been, you know, chewed some of the same dirt in the same locations, but a majority of us haven't served together. And even though there's that difference, when we come together as a group, it's almost like we've known each other for years. Mm -hmm. And just to be able to kind of have that camaraderie and that friendship back, you know, just like it was when you had the uniform on. You know, you go to work every day. Yeah, it's work. It's the military, but that's your family. You know, so you have that, you still have that same mindset. And when you're around those other like-minded people, people, similar experiences, you have no problems being yourself, being who you are around them. And just being, being part of fairways is great because you connect with so many people, so many like-minded people, similar experiences. And, 
it's more than just golf. Golf is great. It's fun. It's relaxing. And, uh, but, but it's fairways has been more than just golf. They've really stepped up and filled a void uh, for me and my family. Uh, they've done above and beyond to help us out in many ways. Uh, they've sent me on exclusive trips, you know, like once in a lifetime trips, you know, and you don't get that from so many other organizations, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just, or they do it the wrong been, way. It's been great or they do it the wrong way. Right. You know, and the only thing, the only thing Tom asked for is just for you to be yourself and to take advantage of it and make the most out of everything. That's all Tom really wants. Mm-hmm. And, that that's key honestly mm-hmm. it's it's just been great being part of fairways i've loved it i've essentially stepped up into being the national chaplain for the organization um oh, wow. to help establish more of a spiritual foundation uh for the organization um and i'm also simultaneously now the state director for virginia mm. um uh, me and Josh were co-state directors for a while. Josh Grimm, right? And uh, Josh Grimm, right? Yeah, I love that guy. And uh, yeah, he's great. He's great. I love him. He's one of my best friends. And uh, but you know, Josh, uh, he has uh, left the reins over to me, so mm-hmm. <laughs> I've taken that on, and uh, and I'm just trying to do the best that I can for everybody, and just you know. The organization is really going to be what you put into it. Mm-hmm. I think and it's great because we put everything we got into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think I, I know what you were saying. Like it's more than just golf, but I, I think the reason why golf is so good for veterans is it gets you outside in the sun, which, you know, everybody needs some vitamin D gets you out moving, but then, more importantly, I think it's it's one of the fair, rare things that you can do that you're kind of you're forced to sit next to somebody and start having more like, I guess, intimate conversations, you know, learning more about the person and and connecting in a different way than you would if you just went to a dinner or just went to, you know, uh, an outing or you just went to, um, I don't know, to, to sit somewhere and, and talk about things, you know. I just feel like there's a lot more connection that can happen when you have, you know, two to three and a half hours with somebody. And um, I just think that's why golf especially can be very impactful for a lot of veterans and can help in a lot of different ways. I've definitely seen a big impact for a lot of people, uh, for me personally, because, you know, as I said earlier, I was a big athlete in high school with military career now all of a sudden you're medically retired Mm -hmm. you you can't do all that stuff you used to anymore your body doesn't take it but you still have a desire to be athletic to do great things you know and just getting out there on the golf course it it encapsulates even though it's people don't look at it as a real physical sport it's real physical because there's a Mm -hmm. lot of walking oh yeah (laughs) 
there's a lot of walking. You use every muscle in your body, you know, swinging that club. And in you the know, summertime, more depending just on your arms. Yeah, it can suck yeah. in the summertime, depending on where you're at. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so it's it's all physical. It's all mental because you can't get hyped up over one good shot because the moment you do, you mess up your next shot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's always a thinking forward, seeing how you're going to play the next shot. And even if you're with other people, there's no more than three other people with you. So you don't ever have to worry about a crowd. Yep. Get away from the stress of the world out there. Yeah. I love it. It's kind of like, I imagine it just builds that camaraderie in a new foundation you know, doing something new with other people. Do you guys have, um, have you guys already had talks on how you guys want to further expand the organization? Well, that's always kind of a, a discussion. Um, we have members that have joined that live in different locations mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, Hey, why don't we start a chapter out here? Okay. Well, before we do that, we got to find somebody that's going to commit themselves to it. Yeah. Because it's more than just saying, oh, well, let's do this. Okay, done. You know, done. You know, it's more than just that. You got to actually find somebody that's willing to put forth the effort and not quit so easily because it doesn't take off as quick as you think it is. Because it took us a few years to build up a chapter here in Virginia. Mm -hmm. You know, at first it was just me and Josh, and now we're over 100 people here in Virginia with two successful tournaments every year. Oh, wow. You know, and I've, you know, this is the first year that I've been able to have golf courses throughout the entire state conduct clinics for our members that live in those different locations so that our members don't have to drive multiple hours to a clinic and then drive multiple hours home yeah. they're closer to home well so it takes a while it takes a while it really does i'm no veteran but dan and i may have to make our way up to one of those come on i'd love to have you have a couple cigars and hit some balls hit some balls into the trees there you go <laughs> find, find go a, squirrel hunting yeah find a beach uh or some water yep so well, I'm kind of curious, Roy, from, you know, your personal experiences of transitioning and, and you know, hardships that you've had. Um, I think you lightly touched on earlier that, you know, you had an alcohol problem. Uh, what would be your advice, you know, for other veterans who have their own struggles adapting to society again? Don't give up on yourself. Uh, it's It's easy to give up on yourself. It's easy to lose hope because when you do that, you don't have to fight no more, but that's not who we are. We're mm -hmm. fighters because we've made it this far. So my biggest advice would be not to give up on yourself and to also keep in mind that one size does not fit all. There's more than one way to overcome your obstacles, to overcome your issues, whatever you're dealing with, there's more than one way to take it or to take it on and overcome it. You just got to keep searching until you find that right fit. And then once you find that fit, give it your all, stick with it. 
it's not going to erase what happened. It's not going to erase the feelings and anxiety that comes with it. Mm-hmm. But it helps helps make things more manageable. You know, when you find a good support system and you're connected to it and you're honest with your support system about what's going on with you, because your support system can only support you if you're honest with them. Yeah. And that's where I failed at. I failed my wife on that uh, for a long time because I wasn't honest with her about how I was feeling. And, uh, you know, so until I was finally honest with her about my feelings and what I was going through, she couldn't really do nothing for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's so important to what you said. We, we just recently talked to another veteran who, who more or less kind of said along the same lines as you did is like, don't give up on yourself and realize that there's going to be for the most part, nobody else that you can rely on. You've got to build your support systems around you to have somebody to rely on, but it's unique outside of the military because when you're in the military, say you're on, you know on a run or something like that, you start falling out. Well, you got people who are with you who are going to start pushing you to have you like stay up with the team. The team's going to slow down for you. Whereas outside of service, like you you don't necessarily have that unless you create those systems around you to have that, and it's one of those things that I think a lot of people lose and they don't realize they lost it immediately. Mm-hmm. And I know I didn't. And you have to make a conscious effort to find those people, you know, whether, whether it's other people you serve with and you reconnect with them and you stay up to date with them, or you get involved in other veteran organizations and things like that. Like you have to find some way to look out for yourself, not give up on yourself and have, the support structures around you that you at least somewhat exemplify what you had in service. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting because I'm not going to knock, you know, all of society because, you know, I've obviously been a civilian my whole life. So I only see things in a certain light, but I think that outside of the people that do good things for others, I think that as a society, we're very selfish in nature. So I don't think that we have that, that camaraderie, you know, joining the military where they rebuild you from nothing in a sense, they strip you and rebuild you. And then your team is there for you because they don't want to see you fail. And that becomes like the backbone of your everyday. I feel like you don't have that, you know, when you transition, you try and become friends with civilians, but then you see that maybe they don't have your back as much as your brothers and sisters and the, you know, the service did. So I think there just needs to be more of that. What can you do for others? You know, I know we all live busy lives and we all have our own things going on, especially if you have kids, but I think it's kind of like if you've got an hour or even 10 minutes, I know it's a big difference, but out of your day to reach out to somebody, call them or, you know, be thinking about someone or do things for them and show them that you're there to support them. I think that as a society, we can relate a whole lot more to maybe bridging that gap between the civilian and veteran, you know, communities. Yeah, it's definitely a bridge. It does need to be built. Um, because a lot of people, like you said, don't know how to intercept, uh, the mentality of a veteran. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, that's, that's a learning curve all in itself. But I think if people would just take the time, just like you said, just to stop and listen, that would make a world of difference. Yeah. And I guess to touch more on that, on the contrary, what do you think is the one, you know, main stereotype that you'd like to clarify or change about veterans? Um, wow. Not all of us are all out to get something for free. Mm -hmm. I have heard a lot of that stereotype lately that there's a, you know, veterans that just want to get stuff for free, you know, and whatnot, but for me and a lot of the veterans that I know, it's not like that. Uh, we really are dedicated and have a heart for who we are and what we do. And it's, we take that pride and integrity in earning what we get. You know, it's, it's not about trying to get stuff for free or nothing like that. Like fairways, you know, fairways has done a lot for me, but, I'm not just taking, I'm giving back, you know, because that in the midst of that giving back is giving me a new purpose in life, uh, giving me a new mission to focus on. And also in the midst, helping my brothers and sisters in arms that are going through the same things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's, it's definitely like you said, a bridge that we need to build. And I think that's why, you know, we were motivated to start up our company and, you know, the first project of this book that we're working on. And, you know, it was just great to meet up with you and have you be a big part of it. Um, I got to say, it's kind of cool that the circumstances of how we took your photo, because I think it's so unique. You know, every everybody's photo has its own story to it. But there's, I don't know, there's something about, you know, that day of me meeting up with you to where it was, it was so selfless, you know, kind of on your end. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing that story and and seeing that photo in the book when it comes. And uh, I can't thank you enough for, you know, wanting to be a part of it. And, um, you know, as we start to kind of wrap up, you know, let Dan and I ever like know if we can ever help with anything with Fairways, because I know we've been hearing about Fairways for Warriors, you know, over and over again from multiple people that are part of the organization. And we've heard nothing but great things. And I think that's one of the you know, main organizations that we want to help support. Well, I really appreciate it. And I can also thank you for the other veterans that are involved as well. Uh, we really appreciate everything that Fairways does. And I'll definitely make sure that you always know what's going on, at least up here in the Virginia chapter, mm -hmm. so that you can sw swing through, play around the golf. Even if we don't have nothing going on, come on up and visit. I'll take you out. <laughs> I might take you up on that. I know there's some areas that there I want to explore and, you know, just being around people like you, it definitely, uh, humbles me a little bit as a person too. So I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Well, cool, Roy. Well, again, thank you for joining us tonight, you know, for taking the time. I'm glad that we could catch up, you know, after the few months that we've been in contact of us traveling around and you doing your thing, but I'm glad to have you on tonight. And, uh, 
your story, it, it's very heartwarming. And I think that there's a lot of people that need to have that same mindset that you have. Thank you. I'm glad to be part of this and just to be able to have that opportunity to share the story. Yeah. I, I know there's a lot of veterans that listen to this and, you know, uh, your story in particular made me kind of realize that I need to take some actions and, and try and reconnect with, uh, with my, my friend's, uh, family that, you know, lost, oh man, it'll be, I don't even know, 20, no, 10 years this year. So, um, I'll definitely take some actions and I, I appreciate you sharing your story. Anytime, anytime. Yeah, thank you, Roy. Enjoy your night, and uh, we'll be in touch here soon, my friend. Yes, sir. You too.